We turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 10, and we'll begin reading at verse 24. Acts chapter 10 records Peter's vision and call to bring the gospel to those non-Jewish people whom God had called to hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ through him, uh, making clear that uh, the kingdom of Christ is to extend through all the nations of the earth and all peoples are to be gathered into one on the same terms by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll, uh, we'll take up our reading, uh, in this chapter at verse 24. It refers to Cornelius, uh, or those who were sent by him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as had come with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, 
Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Connection with our scripture reading will turn also uh, to the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 19. Why the next words and sits at the right hand of God. Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Do you know anything about the Christian message? Do you know what the Christian faith is all about? Or do you know anything about it at all? Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes that might be a good opening question uh, to have a conversation with someone about matters of faith. I asked that question recently and received an answer that uh, uh, still strikes me as a bit surprising living in this country? No. No, was the response. Somebody knew nothing about the Christian faith. He couldn't say anything about the Christian message. Perhaps he was in a situation somewhat, somewhat similar to those to whom Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17, where he confronted people that uh, knew nothing about God. They ignorantly worshipped him, uh, by means of this altar that they had erected uh, to the unknown God. And Paul, in preaching to them, begins with God the Creator. He begins with proclaiming God as the ruler of all, as one who is near, one in whom we live and move and have our being, as one who exists in stark contrast to all idols, and he, after expounding the reality of who God is as the sovereign Lord, he communicates the command of God to turn from their ignorance and idolatry to this God. Well, Cornelius and his household, they were, they were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And yet they had a knowledge of God. And they had a knowledge of his word. In fact, they even knew something about the Lord Jesus Christ, as is made clear in verse 37, where concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea. And then he gives kind of a summary of uh, the life and ministry of Christ, which uh, appears to have been somewhat familiar to Cornelius and his household. We know certainly that uh, they already feared God. They revered and worshipped God. And they 
uh, did works of righteousness. But God called Peter to proclaim to them the gospel that would bring them all the way, all the way to an equal place in the church, along with believing Israel, being baptized by the same Spirit uh, through faith alone, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household, he zeroes in, among other things, he zeroes in on what we confess in Lord's Day 19, particularly in question and answer 52, and those words of our creed concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his return to judge the living and the dead. And actually those, those words are, uh, found in this passage verbatim where we hear, uh, this declaration that, uh, Christ has been ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And that means that Christ is ordained by God to be the judge of all, all who may yet be alive at his glorious return, all those who have died down through the millennia. Christ, the exalted Christ, will come to judge. He will come as judge, judge of all. That's our theme that we're going to focus especially on this evening. I know that uh, this Lord's Day also speaks of the, the session of Christ, that is Christ being exalted to the right hand of God. And uh, our intention is not to skip over that, but to see that exaltation also, particularly in connection with this climax of Christ's exaltation in his coming as judge. And so we begin with our consideration of the judgment and the glory of Christ and how these two relate together. The judgment day of Christ. The judgment of Christ uh, is the climax of what is sometimes uh, described as the steps of Christ's exaltation. The Apostles' Creed follows uh, the account of Jesus' humiliation followed by his exaltation. And sometimes that account is presented uh, by way of uh, descending steps. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell, down, down, down in this state of humiliation. Our Lord Jesus Christ descended in the great work of our redemption. But the depths of his humiliation was followed by successive steps of exaltation. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And we might also see a kind of ascension here in terms of those steps with the return of Christ as judge being the climax of the display of his exalted glory, that glory that we await yet to behold. Question 51, when it, when it asks, uh, how does this glory of Christ benefit us? It there in the immediate context, uh, 
is referring to Christ's session or his being seated at the right hand of God. But actually, when you look at the answer, you see how the answer relates also to these other steps of Christ's exaltation, that is, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven that is clearly associated with the gift of Pentecost, as we saw last time. And so our catechism refers to Christ's glory manifested in these steps of exaltation. But they come to a climax in the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme judge of all. The message of the judgment day of Christ was an essential element of Peter's message to Cornelius and his household. And the message of Christ's judgment also in this context comes as a way of a climax to Peter's focus upon the greatness of the Savior. And, and that is highlighted throughout his message. First of all, Christ is the one whom God sent, verse 36. And the one who was there in verse 36 also identified as him who is Lord of all. He is the one whom God sent, who is Lord of all. And again, that's a reference to Christ in this context. He is the one, uh, secondly, whom God anointed. Verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then follows the description of Christ's ministry of grace and power as he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? How? For God was with him. God sent him. God anointed him. God was with him. He is the one whom God raised up. We read in verse 40, after he had been taken and killed by hanging on a tree, him God raised up on the third day. It is God who showed him openly. Yes, Jesus appeared to those witnesses chosen beforehand, but our text emphasizes again that this is God's doing. He is putting his uh, son on display to these witnesses as the one who has risen triumphant from the dead. And he is the one whom God ordained, whom God appointed as judge. That's essential to the testimony that was given to the apostles, to the church, to testify that it is he, that is Christ, who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. It's interesting that in, in uh, Paul's sermon uh, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17 that I had uh, just recently um, cited, his message comes to a similar uh, climax in verse 31. In verse 31 we read, He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Yes, he is a true man who shares in our nature, but he has been appointed uh, and ordained by God to exercise this 
exalted divine prerogative which God alone could ever execute, and that is to act as the supreme judge of the living and the dead. Everything that the Old Testament Scriptures say about the glory of God as judge who is coming, who will judge the world in righteousness, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a profound testimony of the divinity of our Savior. Oh yes, true man, but true God, who is to be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. That's how Jesus describes uh, his exaltation and the honor that the Father conferred upon him in John chapter 5, where he says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's an absolute equality in honor, in glory, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that is made abundantly clear, and it's highlighted in the role that our Lord Jesus Christ will exercise as judge of all. The gospel is Christ-centered and God-centered. We don't make a choice. We don't uh, set up some kind of uh, false dilemma as to whether it is one or the other. It is God-centered, and it is Christ-centered. And that's an important part of the Christian message. You know, a lot of people uh, think of Jesus as a great teacher, perhaps, uh, as a miracle worker, um, as perhaps the founder of a new religion, Well, yes, Jesus worked miracles indeed in fulfillment of the Scripture. And indeed, he is uh, the chief prophet who fully revealed the will of God. But he's not some founder of a new religion. He is the supreme manifestation of the grace and the power of God. God with us in saving mercy and authority and power. Now, that was veiled in his humiliation but it is revealed in his exaltation and will be demonstrated supremely when he comes in glory as judge. Christian preaching, Christian witness begins and proceeds with teaching the story, the the whole story. When you look at apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, you'll find that uh, before they ever reached any kind of uh, directives or commands with respect to a response to God, like a command to believe or a command to repent, before they ever reach that point, what do they do? They tell the story. They teach. They explain. They explain particularly who the Lord Jesus Christ is as the one promised and sent by God in fulfillment of Scripture to carry out His will and to accomplish a redemption that God purposed from the very beginning and fulfills in His beloved Son. They laid out the history of redemption. 
They told the story of God's progressive revelation. All these indicatives, you might say, before you ever come to any kind of imperatives. And that's because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a message about the glory of God revealed in His Son and what God has done through Him to accomplish salvation. The Holy Spirit was sent by the exalted Christ. When He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, He poured forth, He shed forth His Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince the world, as the Lord Jesus Christ described it in John chapter 16, to convince or to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But every, every point of, of conviction as it relates to these things is inseparably related to the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is. The Holy Spirit is sent by Christ to convince the world of sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. And to convince the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ was the proof and the vindication of Christ's saving work. That indeed, He had paid the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And that was demonstrated by His resurrection and exaltation, which displays the fact that indeed God the Father is well pleased with His finished work. And the way of a righteousness has been accomplished by His Son. And He will convince the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The death of Christ proclaims the defeat of Satan, whose head was crushed at the cross. You see how uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the message of the gospel, as it relates to conviction of sin, is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, His accomplishment, and His glory. See, that's why we speak of, of judgment and the glory of Christ together. Because we can do so in no other way, biblically, without see these things, seeing these things in their relationship to one another. Consider uh, the proclamation of judgment and how it's given in the book of Psalms. Now, for one thing, and again, this relates to the message this morning, it is presented as a reason for great joy. Again and again, that's, that's how it's proclaimed as uh, a call to joy. The call to worship is a call to joy and to worship with joy the God who is a righteous judge. In Psalm 67, we sang that this morning. It was quoted before, but we want to also give attention uh, to these words uh, that call for a joyful shout to the Lord and the reason there being. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Or Psalm 98, uh, verses 4 and uh, 4 through 6. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King, for He is coming to judge the earth. 
with righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. That psalm that we read together, Psalm 96, verses 11 and following. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness and on and on. Why? For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. You see the close connection between worship and joy? And joy in view of judgment? Why is that? Well, such a connection shows us, brothers and sisters, that we do not come to worship in order to deplore the state of the world. We do not come to worship to bemoan the powers of this age and their threats and dangers. Oh, we have to be aware of them, and sometimes it's important to identify them specifically and name them. But I think that it's a danger, it's a hazard that we face in this current day in which spirituality is measured in terms of the inside scoop on who the real evil people in this world are and what their plans and designs are. These puny little people, we ought not to exaggerate their significance. Yes, the powers of this world have always conspired against the Lord and against His Christ. But He has set His King upon His holy hill. He who sits in the heaven laughs. He holds in derision every earthly power that presumes to, to oppose him. And that indeed ought to uh, give a, a, an important note to our worship and our joy before God in worship. We don't come to church to rail against the government. We don't come to church to decry all these puny powers of the world. But we rejoice and the fact that God will set everything right. Absolutely. His perfect justice will be revealed. His truth will be made known. His church, His people will be preserved. They will be vindicated. And that perspective must always loom large in our worship, in our outlook on the world. And we know that this judgment to come is a manifestation of God's rule, that God is king. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, we read in Psalm 96. Psalm 98, shout joyfully before the Lord, the king. Well, yes, in the Old Covenant, that Old Testament context, Yes, that refers to God and His absolute sovereignty and rule over all. But now in the fullness of Revelation, we hear these words and we think of our exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King, whose kingdom has already been manifested and it will be revealed in its fullness and perfection when the King appears in glory. How is this kingdom and this king manifested in the Psalms? Well, in Christ, because it's in him that God's good news of salvation is made known from day to day. The new song of the redeemed is a song of joy and celebration in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great subject of this new song. He is the king of glory. He is the one whose kingdom has already been manifested and it will be revealed when he himself comes as judge. 
Yes, we must always keep together the judgment and the glory of Christ. Secondly, we consider the judgment and the dread of the wicked. Answer 52 gives a very brief, you might say a a rather stark uh, description of the judgment of the wicked when it says Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. And this must not be a, a missing note, and it will not be a missing note in faithful gospel preaching. It's an essential part of the message. In 2 Corinthians 5, what do we hear uh, from the Apostle Paul in verses, uh, in verses 10 and 11? Verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's in the context of the judgment to come, the reality that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And how that indeed is a, is a terror to the, the wicked and the guilty. Therefore, we, we persuade men, we beseech men to be reconciled to God on the basis of Him who knew no sin but was made sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. The reality of judgment to come provides the context for the proclamation of the gospel. And again, this is so obvious. It's so clear. In Revelation 14, I just read this morning of this angel who has the everlasting gospel to preach. And what is the message of that everlasting gospel? He says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth. The everlasting gospel is defined there in terms of the call to worship and fear God, the judge. You see, this emphasis, like no other, makes makes clear what is fundamental and necessary and basic to the Christian faith and message. And that is that it is not about how one popular evangelist, so-called, puts it, our best life now. It's not even a matter, first of all, of dealing with our our issues, our personal issues, our mental issues, our relational issues. It's not, it's not, first of all, a matter of our circumstances. It's not, first of all, a matter of our dysfunctions or our moods or our problems viewed in a temporal way. The fact is that there are issues, there are mental, there are social, there are personal issues that are going to dog every one of us throughout our life in this world. Oh, yes. The healing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, brings uh, sanctification and wholeness increasingly in this life, but in such an imperfect way. And the real message of the gospel is not temporal deliverance from all these things. It's about how to escape the dreadful consequences of sin against God in view of judgment to come. It's, you might say, salvation by God, but salvation from God as judge who is against us in our sin and who is for us only in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is no condemnation. 
so that we can look at all these things of this present life, all its troubles and miseries, and say nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. None of these things. Why? Because our biggest problem has been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's at the heart of the Christian message. It's at the heart of the Christian faith and the way of thinking about this present evil age. Rejoice, Jesus told his disciples. Not only, or not chiefly, not even because of their success in gospel ministry that the demons are subject to them. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's deliverance from the wrath to come. That's the message of the gospel. Now, the natural man's conscience bears witness to some extent of this coming judgment. That's why people are afraid to die. But we don't just rely on, on uh, that, uh, that reality. We rely on the clear testimony of Scripture that describes even those who do not have the Word of God as those who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. There is an inescapable testimony uh, deep within the hearts of people that there is a judgment to come. And they may suppress it and they can deny it. Oh, they do and are successful to a large extent, but they cannot altogether stifle it and they cannot escape it. The Belgian Confession describing the judgment uh, of Christ says that with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people. For good reason, it is viewed as dreadful. And yet the fact is, isn't it, that unless the Holy Spirit humbles people, this crucial part of the gospel witness will not be received with humility. It will be rejected as offensive. And increasingly in our day, the very suggestion of the disapproval or any kind of moral condemnation of people's lifestyle choices, and today particularly with respect to sexuality, the very suggestion of any kind of moral disapproval of those behaviors which the Scriptures condemn is viewed as an assault upon their person, an attack upon their identity. It's viewed as harming them by causing emotional discomfort. That's the climate in which Christians bear testimony to God's judgment against sin. It's a climate that makes you out to be the evildoer. Oh, there are very few sins in our days, but one of the sins that are often pointed out is the sin of doing emotional harm to people by registering disapproval of their lifestyle choices. You're not a safe person if you do that. You're harmful. And that means that Christian witness requires boldness, but it also requires that we speak the truth in love, in humility, that we don't witness down to people, that we speak of the, of the judgment as revealed fact in Scripture in a way that includes us. And we realize, according to the Scripture, that God's judgment is not selective. And some of the hardest and the harshest judgments that are rendered in the New Testament, even by our Lord Jesus Christ, are against religious hypocrisy. And our testimony also against the evils of this age must not be selective but biblical in a way that humbles us before a holy God 
as well as aims at the conviction of the need to be right with God. I think it's significant, I've mentioned it before, but I think it's good to remember that in this world in which people do not know who they are, they have no true grasp of their identity as made by God and as accountable to Him. There's something about the reality of judgment to come that proclaims the significance of every individual person. God cares enough about everyone that they are going to appear before Him and give an account to the creator and ruler of the world of their lives. Their lives are not accidental. Their lives are not without meaning. They're made by God. They're, they're made for God. And so even the message of judgment involves the kind of truth which received, which believed, brings a kind of sanity and a kind of perspective to life that shows that there are objective truths that we must take into account. And that's the background also for the message of salvation. Yes, the message of the gospel is how to escape the dreadful consequences of sin against God. Because the final judgment is not the final word of the gospel. Right? It's actually uh, what gives urgency to the message of the gospel itself. That's the context in which Paul proclaims it in Acts chapter uh, 17. He says in verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. In other words, the judgment to come is presented as a great motivation to repent, to change your mind, to turn to this God. Do you know the Christian message? I asked that to one young man, and uh, his response was yes. And forgive me if I've used this illustration before. I realize the danger of doing that. But he said yes, and then he put on the air of a, of, a, of a preacher, perhaps a street preacher that he heard, saying, God is going to judge you. You're going to go to hell unless you repent. You must pray. You must go to church. And he, he was rather surprised when I said, no, no, actually, that's not, that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the good news. That's, that's the reality of the bad news. That's the context in which we really need to hear good news. That there is a way of forgiveness. And that forgiveness is not through works of righteousness that we are able to do, but it's through the free gift of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the reality of judgment that people already know somewhat in their own hearts is the context, indeed, and it's part of the message, but its aim is to pave the way for the good news of Christ. It shows why we need him. And in that connection, finally, we consider judgment and the comfort of believers. In contrast to the wicked, we also read in Belgian Confession uh, that though for good reason it is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people, it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect. Since their total redemption will then be accomplished, they will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered, 
Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented in them in this world. Similar to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in terms of the comfort that we have in view of this judgment. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. The struggle will be over. All suffering will be ended. Evil will be eradicated. The godly will be vindicated, honored, even rewarded in grace. But at the heart of this comfort is the identity of our judge. I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. You see, there's no other way in which the thought of judgment to come could be very delightful and pleasing to us than through the knowledge of this Savior. See how Peter joins uh, these, these things together in Acts chapter 10. In verse 42, we are to testify, the apostle says, that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. He joins together the exalted glory of Christ as the judge of the living and the dead. And the Forgiveness of sins that is for everyone who believes in Him. What a contrast. What a combination of thoughts. In our judge, through our Him, there is forgiveness of sin. The exalted one is the very one who is made the lowest of the low. The one who will judge the wicked was judged as wicked. Not only by men. But he was judged as wicked in the sight of God, not because he was personally wicked in any way, but because he took upon himself our sins and was treated as a wicked one. The one who will say to the unbelieving wicked, depart from me, you cursed, was himself the one who endured the curse of God that was against us when he suffered it himself. Or we might say, to use that allusion of Psalm 75, the one that holds this cup of wrath and judgment that he will pour out on the wicked is the very one who took that cup of wrath and he put it to his lips and he drank and he drank and he drank to the very dregs as he suffered the judgment and curse of God against himself in our place. And the result is that whoever hears this message may escape his sentence now. There's a glorious whosoever in verse 43 of Acts chapter 10. Whoever, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins, however guilty, however helpless, however evil, however miserable, however old or young, however hard and strong or weak and fragile. However people may have it together or look that way or think they are or however broken they are, whether male or female or even confused about whether they're male and female, whoever turns to this great God and Savior and believes in Him 
will receive the forgiveness of sins and they may have their dread changed to rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.